Welcome to Live in America's Town Hall, live constitutional conversations held here at the National Constitution Center in Philadelphia and across America. I'm Tanea Tauber, Director of Town Hall Programs. Earlier this summer, historians Nancy Eisenberg and Andrew Burstein visited the NCC to discuss their new book, The Problem of Democracy, The President's Adams Confront the Cult of Personality. Professors Eisenberg and Burstein discussed the lives and political careers of father and son presidents John and John Quincy Adams and explored the politics of personality in early America. They sat down with Lana Ulrich, Senior Director of Content at the National Constitution Center. Here's Lana. So, Nancy, I'll start with you. Uh, You came on our other podcast, the We the People podcast, a few years ago to celebrate the opening of our Hamilton exhibit, which is just downstairs in the Annenberg lobby uh, with Jay Cost. And the Hamilton exhibit tells the stories of the constitutional clashes that shaped America through the lens of Hamilton's relationship with other founders like Madison and Jefferson. Now on the podcast, uh, we didn't have a chance to get to John Adams. There wasn't enough time. So I'm, I'm glad you're here to pick up on that story and tell us a little bit more about John Adams and his son, John Quincy Adams. Uh, So why don't you start by just telling us a little bit about who is John Adams, who is his son, John Quincy, uh, what were they, where were they born, and what was their relationship like? Well, I, I just want to mention that if you've seen the musical Hamilton, John Adams does not come off very well. (laughs) Um, And that's because uh, he had a long-standing, conflicted relationship with Alexander Hamilton. Um, But we like to refer to them as two and six, because essentially John Adams was the second president of the United States, John Quincy Adams was the sixth president of the United States. And part of the reason that they make such an interesting study of democracy and politics is because of their extensive experience. I mean, John Adams began and became a national figure when he served in the Second Continental Congress. Then he would go on to be a very extremely important diplomat. He would be there for the signing of the Treaty of Paris that ended the American Revolution. Um, He would be president, as I already mentioned, vice president. Um, And his son had a a similar, but we can almost invert it because his son essentially would begin by being a diplomat uh, and a translator at very young age, at the age of 14. Um, He would also go to the Netherlands like his father. Uh, He would end up being in Monroe's cabinet. Uh, He would be president. And then one of the things we emphasize that's so unusual about John Quincy Adams is that after his four-year term as president, He then ran for Congress, the House of Representatives, um, in 1830, and he was there until the day he died at his desk in 1848. So yes, they did not end up serving on a court or a judge, but they are positioned to comment on politics and its formation, and we're really interested in getting away from the other problem that historians face is often they just study one period, but by studying both of them, we can look at the transition. How did the government evolve and change when you go from the period of the early republic and the founding to the antebellum pre-Civil War period? What what makes uh, the Adamses unique Uh, aside from what Nancy said, is that they were two who stood above party. Um, The Constitution of the United States, the framers of the Constitution at the convention here in Philadelphia, uh, did not anticipate 
in the document that there would be organized political parties competing with one another, which was why uh, we have the 12th Amendment uh, since 1804, because the, the second highest vote getter uh, became president, uh, became vice president. And, uh, you know, as Nancy began by talking about the Hamilton-Adams relationship, Alexander Hamilton, as early as 1788-89, wanted to see that there was only one celebrity figure that no one could approach the great General Washington. And so uh, he used his sort of uh, back channel uh, means of contacting electors uh, and suggested that the New Englanders were going to somehow uh, orchestrate John Adams's uh, uh, overcoming General Washington. And so uh, Hamilton wanted to reduce the number of elector or electoral votes that, that the second highest vote getter, the uh, would-be vice president, received. And so uh, John Adams was a little bit ticked off about this. And uh, he received 34 electoral votes. Each elector got two votes, each equally weighted. And so he received 34 to General Washington's 69 electoral votes. It wasn't even close. And uh, uh, this was a personal affront to uh, John Adams. Um, he had plenty of reason to detest Alexander Hamilton because even as president, he was faced with uh, Hamil a Hamiltonian cabinet. They were loyal to Hamilton and not loyal to the president. And John Adams being, uh, as he's come to be known through the ages, uh, Honest John Adams, which is the title of a book published in the 1930s, um, he uh, didn't think that it was appropriate for uh, the incoming president in 1797 to uh, uh, invest the cabinet with his own loyal people. And so he inherited Washington's second term cabinet, which was the Hamiltonian cabinet. And they undermined him for the first uh, three of his four years until finally, uh, near the end of his one term presidency, John Adams got rid of the Hamiltonians. And Hamilton then went on a tear and tried to make sure that Adams was not reelected. I haven't even begun to talk about John Quincy Adams, but I think we'll have a chance to do that. <laughs> yeah, I, I just want to emphasize a point. I mean, one of the things, and this was, again, one of the critiques that the father and son had, is that from the very beginning, someone behind the scenes was pulling the strings. And this is part of the problem. And, and one of the things we're going to emphasize is their greatest fear was not just democracy, but it was the fear of oligarchy, rule of the few, that powerful, whether it's powerful factions or powerful political parties or powerful people like Hamilton, who we saw and knew about all his maneuvers, behind the scenes were really having a lot of influence in determining the outcome of elections. So. Um this is, I think, what you refer to as the cult of personality, right? Which I guess started with George Washington. Um, and Benjamin Franklin. Actually started with Benjamin Franklin. Franklin. Benjamin Franklin, right. Hometown boy, we know. <laughs> yeah. I grew up 20 minutes away from here in South Jersey. John, <laughs> right. John Adams. Uh, <laughs> hey, claps for South Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> John Adams referred to Benjamin Franklin in Europe when they were negotiating the Treaty of Paris together in 82-83 um, as the old conjurer. He saw him as uh, a man who uh, was sort of 
with a bloated reputation that maybe he was somebody once, um, but he was just kind of gliding on his reputation, in fact was in the pocket of the French foreign minister and was not a very good negotiator, um, uh, treaty negotiator at all. <clears throat> um, uh, but, you know, to his credit, uh, the first President Adams uh, waited a good many years until he was a retired ex-president before he publicly uh, said anything negative about Franklin and his reputation. Um, uh, but uh, the cult of George Washington was really the, the, the cult of personality that got this nation started and uh, you know, the first expressed a kind of national need for a mythology, uh, for a creation narrative. And uh, you know, no one was present at the creation on a larger scale than George Washington and upon his death uh, there's a famous engraving that many of you, I'm sure, have seen in which he is lifted to heaven on wings of angels. And uh, as Nancy always reminds me, it's um, the head of Washington. Washington on, on Jesus' yeah. body. <laughs> uh, so in case, you know, the, and then when uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson both conspired to die on the 50th, 4th of July, um, the newspapers said this you know, mathematical near impossibility was clearly an act of God's providence, uh, reminding the second generation, the successor generation to the founders, that America was founded with godly purposes and that uh, it wasn't uh, just uh, a bunch of uh, hard-nosed politicians debating uh, what was in their, the, the, the self-interest of the states they represented, which, which is why most, much of our book deals with the conduct of politics and uh, how the Adamses have been misconstrued by uh, legions of historians and popular biographers as anti-democratic when in fact uh, they were uh, political theorists and uh, political critics who uh, had an interpretation that was not the ecstatic celebratory democracy that we think of when, you know, they, didn't, they did not usher in the age of anything. Um, although we believe that we can talk about Adamsian democracy uh, as a thing, Nancy can address that, and uh, we know of Jeffersonian democracy, Jacksonian democracy, and we are suggesting in our study that, um, that these terms um, are oversimplifications, and in the case of Jacksonian democracy, actually uh, a terrible misnomer. Yeah, I just would like to kind of emphasize a few points. I mean, when we look at the relationship between John Adams and Benjamin Franklin, um, in France in particular, um, we don't say that John Adams got everything right. And I think this is another really important element of historical analysis, is that you don't want to like knock one person off the pedestal and put another in place. They had very different ideas of how they wanted to define American uh, diplomacy. And one of the, and this is what irked John Adams, is that he felt uh, not only was Benjamin Rush being treated by the French as, as America's first rock star, Benjamin and he, Franklin. yeah, Benjamin Franklin's as Benjamin, uh, as America's first rock star and surrounded by women all the time and going to parties. Uh, but Franklin himself, believed that America had to behave because America wasn't powerful at this time 
and we did need the French to win the American Revolution, that, that the diplomatic stance that he wanted to take was that America had to be like a virgin and had to seduce and be deferential to the more powerful nation. And John Adams didn't want that at all. He believed that the United States, clearly they couldn't you know, compete on an equal playing field with either Great Britain or France, but he wanted the United States to take a more neutral stance. Um, but as I said, when we address this, we, we look at both of their positions and why both of them have valid observations. Um, and that's one of the things we try to do when we look at John Adams, is try to recover him um, not to say that he had all the right answers, because when you study people in real time, they can't predict what the future is going to be. They don't have. The founders did not have a magic crystal ball <laughs> in which they could anticipate what would our government would become in modern day times. And an another interesting fact about the Adamses that's, that's not known well is that they were cosmopolitans, uh, that they saw more of the old world and spent more time abroad as in a diplomatic garb than any of the other members of the founding era pantheon. Um, this experience, because if you looked at American newspapers in the 1780s and 90s and early 19th century, there was at least as much space, uh, column inches, given to news from Europe. America still looked at itself as a reflection of old world forms, and even if there was a proud uh, republic and a proud nationalism developing, uh, there was still, as Nancy said, this sense of being culturally, economically, militarily subordinate to the power of the old world. And so there, you know, America did have a chip on its shoulder. In this respect, the Adams's experience abroad gave them the opportunity to sell the idea of America um, in, in terms of its uh, moral identity, in terms of the political thinking that went into its foundation, its creation. And so they were tremendous ambassadors for the idea of America. And you know, this gets left out of the, of the national story because again, they didn't usher in the age of anything. And finally, uh, John Quincy Adams, though he spent his teenage years in Europe, he came back uh, to attend Harvard, became uh, a, a lawyer in uh, Boston, like his father before him, um, and developed a sense of place, a sense of New England provincialism that his father had grown with, so that they were both an interesting mix of New England provincial and cosmopolitan. Yeah, and John Quincy Adams, when he's in Congress, this is when he really reclaims his New England identity. I mean, John Adams voices those opinions uh, before the American Revolution. I mean, one of his pen names uh, was Novalis, which stands for New England, so he was very much, uh, and, and took on the character and personality uh, of a typical New Englander. And this is the other reason we really like John Adams and John Quincy Adams. Not only do they give us really their inner thoughts because of their extensive diaries, which you don't have for the other founders. You don't have that for Thomas Jefferson. You have his extensive correspondence. So you really get to see through their eyes what they're observing, but then you also get their feelings, 
um, at, at that moment. And then on top of that, John Adams had a real skill, a real knack. He could have been a writer of fiction. And both father and son loved fiction. I mean, when they're going overseas, they're reading Don Quixote, and they love the picaresque novel. And their favorite work of fiction was, a, was called Gilles Blas, which is all about the, the power of impersonation. And this, again, gets us back to the cult of celebrity, that they know that you may, I mean, even today, we know that you know, every candidate now has to write a memoir or there will have these intimate moments. The Washington Post, for example, has been doing these personality pieces that appear on the weekend. And it gives the audience the sense that you're getting to know that individual, but you're really not, because it's really a manufactured identity that is being presented to an audience. And this is, again, something that John Adams was really concerned with, because he realized that voters were spectators. And he, he loved Shakespeare, so he used the metaphor that politics is a stage. And he understood by looking at the aristocracy, looking at history, that essentially people, men and women, can be dazzled by wealth, beauty, and fame. And what he worried about, and what does happen, is that parties adopted the traditions of aristocrats who had to display their talents. They had to make appearances. And one of our favorite quotes that we like is that John Adams wrote in 1778. He talked about how every man has to be his own trumpeter. Um, and essentially went on to say of how they had to have a statue made, paintings done. They had essentially broadcast their record, their identity, in order to have a name, in order to have a reputation. So whereas a lot of scholars have emphasized with Hamilton or Burr, they've talked about the culture of honor and how important reputation is. But there's another way to look at it, and this is what our book is going to address, is the whole idea of publicity and manufacturing identities. That is also essential to the nature of politics. Yeah, and so Andrew, let's talk specifically about Jackson, uh, who was a huge larger-than-life figure that John Quincy obviously lost the presidency to. Can you explain how that cult of personality built up so greatly to usher him into the White House? Andrew Jackson was the first uh, presidential campaigner to have a formal uh, campaign biography to accompany his campaign. It was authored- Which he didn't write. I was <laughs> going to say, it was authored by two of his military subordinates, uh, one of whom had a law degree. And um, uh, it told the story of his revolutionary heroics as a, young teenager when captured by the British so that uh, uh, he's being built up as the successor to Washington, that we had General Washington who embodied uh, these you know, virtuous character characteristics and uh, the violence and vengeful nature and intemperance uh, bearing uh, of Andrew Jackson, shoot first and ask questions later, um, they sought to bury in the campaign biography. And it was a full-length biography. Um, and it is very readable. Uh, but in building the legend of Andrew Jackson, uh, culminating with the Battle of New Orleans, um, which had uh, global uh, repercussions, there were, he was, referred to as uh, 
uh, Napoleon des Bois, the Napoleon of the forest, um, as, as, a, as a, a larger than life, you know, sort of a general uh, on the world stage, even though he was a, uh, a Southern provincial. And his record in both houses of Congress where he served briefly uh, during the, Adams, the first Adams administration uh, was inconsequential because he never spoke, he was not articulate, he was not uh, well-schooled. And uh, John Quincy Adams in later years uh, referred to him as a barbarian who could not spell. Um, that may be a slight exaggeration, but Jackson, uh, as is the case with um, a number of presidents, uh, like George Washington, like Zachary Taylor, like Ulysses Grant, like Dwight David Eisenhower, were all wartime generals who never had a political ideology, who never belonged to a political party per se. Well, Jackson would have identified with the Jeffersonians. Jefferson himself uh, thought little of Andrew Jackson's intellect. Um, uh, but the fact of their military heroism lodged in the minds of voters as a good preparation. This is a natural leader and a good preparation for the presidency. John Quincy Adams, on the other hand, was generally portrayed in the press as a sedentary individual. He actually was an <laughs> Olympic, okay, maybe that's too much. <laughs> he swam in the Potomac River as a, as a, as a advanced middle-aged president uh, for an hour a day, early in the morning. He would walk to Capitol Hill. Um, he was always walking, always uh, out swimming. Um, uh, he was a, a very vigorous athletic man. He would take walks when he was in St. Petersburg, Russia. He'd run into the czar, taking a walk along the, um, I would mispronounce it if I said the name of the river, um, but in the depths of winter. John Quincy Adams was not this sedentary thinker. Uh, he was much more of an outdoor person than he was portrayed. But in order to counter the anti-intellectual identity uh, that would have stuck to Jackson, Jackson, who was gaunt and sickly, was portrayed as the, the, the man of you know, athletic prowess um, uh, with a noble figure and John Quincy Adams, like his father before him, was portrayed as sort of portly and, uh, you know, uh, sitting behind a desk, and that was it. So uh, we have these strange um, uh, sort of uh, wrong means of characterizing these individuals, and it has lasted through the ages. And that wasn't even new, because essentially in the election of 1800, the same thing was done with Aaron Burr and Jefferson. You know, Burr was the man of action when they were kind of debating, when they, had, they tied in their election. There was like newspaper articles, like Burr was the man of action because he had served in the military. Um, and Jefferson was, you know, a man of words, but, but also seen as uh, the egghead, which is how you know John Quincy Adams was portrayed. But the, the the most important thing about John Quincy Adams, because he's in Congress and he's seeing how uh, the Jacksonian democracy is unfolding, he really 
you know, begins to see uh, the importance and the dangers of slavery to politics. And he sees that what Jackson is doing, Jackson's personality becomes to him, it's being used as a smokescreen. And what he focused on is that what was driving politics was Western expansion, and it was Southern Jacksonian Democrats who, were, who pushed for the annexation of Texas, they pushed for the war with Mexico. They wanted slavery to expand to the Pacific. And what he was seeing is that as parties became a form of entertainment, they, they were this riotous outdoor entertainment. When you went to, to hear speakers or you went to the polling places, they had food and drink. Free alcohol was flowing. Uh, they began to have you know, hokey campaign songs, lavish parades, um, and the party system became much more efficient. This is where he zoned in on party drilling, uh, which was quasi-military. Um, and people who supported the party were given the spoils and were rewarded. And what he saw is that where this entertainment, and it's still true today, where we get caught up in the campaign and, and we're not ever talking about the policies, behind the scenes what was happening is that this Western expansion was really benefiting both speculators and Southern slaveholders. Um, and, and this to him was, you know, part of the, was really part of the danger, that idea that Westerner expansion did not benefit everyone equally. And this became, you know, as he saw democracy developing, he saw this as being uh, dangerous and something that even after Jackson leaves office, the candidates who would follow, um, even from the opposition party that forms, William Henry Harrison, you know, they began to claim that he was born in the, the, a log cabin. This is long before Lincoln. Well, he wasn't born in a log cabin. He was born in, you know, he was the son of a very wealthy planter. Um, and it didn't matter because you could say anything. <laughs> as long as you manufactured an image and you spread it out to your supporters, um, they would stay in line, they would vote for the party. And he felt it was particularly dangerous for Northern voters because he said that, that they were being sold a false bill of goods. They were being promised democracy uh, to really serve the material interests um, of a select elite group who were benefiting from Western expansion. And you know how we have uh, the, the metaphor of a presidential campaign as a horse race? Uh, we have an illustration in the book of uh, the foot race of 1824, in which uh, John Quincy Adams is uh, a nose ahead of Andrew Jackson and uh, no, the, the Georgian, Georgian, William yeah, Crawford. William Harris yeah. Crawford. <laughs> uh, and John Adams is uh, in front of the, the, the gamblers who are betting on this foot race or horse race. Uh, you know, he's cheering on his son. And so this, this idea, the, the metaphor of the game, politics as a game, um, you know, the president hit a home run with a speech or something like that, we do tend to, uh, either it's politics as, as warfare, uh, you know, attack ads, uh, or it's politics as a horse race in terms of its competition. But um, the, the Adamses were about problem solving. They wanted the republic to function uh, so as to maximize the benefit of the balance of power, the separate branches of government. 
and they were concerned about any one branch of government uh, having too much power, whether it was an executive who was chosen by a gullible uh, electorate or um, uh, you know, one, the, the, the Senate being the initially considered the aristocratic branch, uh, uh, having a voice that was louder than the people's house, the lower house, the House of Representatives. Um, so their concern was about uh, any, any factor that would undermine the, the balance within the republic and the gamesmanship and the, the, the charisma of a president. These were factors that could dictate against balance. And, and they, they relied heavily on history. I mean, one of their heroes was Cicero. And essentially, um, that's where the idea of checks and balances comes from. And this is kind of their concern, is that John Adams, and they were also deeply interested in the psychology of politics, um, that people are not ra always rational actors. And, and they believe strongly that in any human heart is the desire for fame, is the desire for ambition. And you can't just rely on the myth of common sense, um, and you can't rely on the idea that elected officials are going to be the men of the people. And that this is where the idea of checks and balances was so essential. You, power and the concentration of power could crop up anywhere. It could crop up in any branch, and that this is why they re return to that theme and again and again. And, and John Adams, of course, is the one who included that famous phrase that's been in the news lately, is that we are a government of laws, not of men. And he took that. That actually comes from James Harrington, the 17th century English political thinker. But it's a really powerful phrase, and it really gets us back to, well, here, the Constitution Center, um, because they believed you cannot trust people. They were skeptical. They were skeptical of human passions. They were skeptical of human desires. Um, and, and that people often will serve their own interests or their party's interests over the will of the people. So this is why you needed a system of checks and balances. This is why they believed in institutions. You needed rules. You needed principles that are protected by institutional checks and balances. And you needed fair proceedings. Uh, because all of us are fallible. <laughs> no one is going to rise up and be a saint um, and somehow a savior or who can rescue us. And, and, and we have to kind of rely on institutions. And this is why where the father believes strongly in the town meeting is the real source of democracy and training. He said from infancy, you have to learn how to debilitate. I mean, excuse me, deliberate <laughs> and debate. But, and the son would take up the same argument with the right of petition, because the right of petition, he believed, was the most inclusive form of expression from the people. And he defended the right of petition not only for women, not only for the abused anti-slavery activists, who Jackson referred to as incendiaries, but he defended the right of petition for slaves. He believed that they also deserved that right. Um, and, and in a sense, there had to be a give and take. You had to facilitate the channels between the people and their representatives and make sure that you got real accurate local knowledge from real people. And this is where newspapers can be dangerous because they often don't accurately reflect. And polling is even worse <laughs> for reflecting what real people think 
um, they push people into little categories and they don't really reflect what, what are people's real interests, real concerns. You know, thus, thus the, uh, uh, the fallacy that the Adamses were anti-democratic or uh, unresponsive to the, the, the people, popular urge for democracy, their uh, understanding of whether it's petitions for JQA or uh, the town meeting, their understanding of where democracy was lodged, where it did the most good, was again about problem solving. Um, so they were never about you can't consider them liberals or conservatives. You can't transport them to our century. Uh, they weren't proponents of big government or small government. They were proponents of good government, government that solved problems that benefited the majority of the people. So how do the parties fit into that then? Are they the root of the, some of this? Or is it, as you mentioned, newspapers, media? Or wh what is the relationship between the party system and the sort of building up of this you know, personality cult? Well, parties, the word party uh, was a word that in the 1780s and 1790s no one wanted to be associated with. You were an interest. So it was the Federalist interest or the, the, the Republican interest of the two first contending parties, or it was the anti-administration interest or party. To have a party, to belong to a party, was uh, to undermine this, the, the, the essential structure of government. So they didn't even like the term party. In the 1790s, it was called party spirit, or the spirit of faction. Um, we have normalized the word, and in some time during the 19th century, it became normalized. But just like democracy, party was a bad word. Democracy in the 1790s referred most often, if you were being called a Democrat, it was, it was and they did use the word terrorist, it was uh, a reflection of what was happening in the French Revolution, the, the mobocracy, and mobocracy is a word that was used then and is still used today. Um, so uh, when we encounter the vocabulary of uh, the early, uh, period in American history, um, we try to contextualize uh, in order uh, that we understand how party uh, organization became uh, acceptable and a necessary function of the system, how democracy became uh, the word that can do, do no wrong, um, that is, is, is essential if we are to have, again, liberty and freedom, two words that mean essentially the same thing uh, that are usually coupled with an and between them, liberty and freedom. Uh, so all of these vocabulary terms that we you know, associate with uh, the spirit of uh, representative democracy. Oh, and that's a very interesting point. And then I'll turn it over to Nancy. Yeah. Uh, John Quincy Adams was the first uh, president to refer to the United States as a representative democracy, again, belying uh, the reputation of his being uh, anti-democratic. Right. It, it wasn't Jefferson. Um, it wasn't Jackson who referred to our government as that kind of system. And that's, I think, one of the problems we often have even today is that our system is not a pure democracy. Um, it is 
the, the whole system of checks and balances comes from a Republican form of government. Um, if we think about the problems you mentioned with party systems, uh, the idea that, that parties, and this is what I was trying to highlight with the Jacksonian period, they become this quasi-military machine which is about party drilling. Uh, it's about making sure that people's allegiance is to the party, um, not necessarily to principle, not necessarily to, uh, you know, to you know, the government or even to the people at large. And this is, this is I think, one of the issues that we contend with. Is, is, and, and if you look at newspapers, um, what people tend to forget, I mean, today we're, people aren't up in arms because they think that television shows are very partisan, are biased. But if you go back to the 1790s, and this is true up to the, into the 19th century, throughout the 19th century, is that parties, that newspapers were explicitly partisan. They, they didn't even have to, journalists didn't have to have two sources. <laughs> they could make things up. They could spread rumors that weren't true. Uh, they could publish anything, and that most newspapers were aligned with a particular party and a particular candidate. Um, so we, this problem that, that we think certain voters are in a bubble, and they aren't talking to, that, that people on different sides aren't talking to each other, is a problem that goes back in our history. And that's where I think if we, if we try to think about, um, and the internet is even worse, because the internet, I mean, another thing that John Adams said, he said that if, if candidates can't win over the voters through the cult of celebrity or the cult of personality, uh, where they, and he said this, he said, where people live vicariously through their idols, and he said that average voters have a special kind of sympathy for elites, a special kind of sympathy for their rulers, because they will never take the stage, but they can live through their uh, elected officials. But the danger of that is why he felt it was so important for the House to be a branch that really captured what average people were thinking. And then we get back to the town meeting. And I've been saying this recently, virtual town meetings are not real town meetings. Um, a town meeting is when you actually have to sit across and look at someone who might not agree with anything that you believe in. And people behave differently than, than when you have to look at someone and talk to them and be civil than on the internet. And this is, I, I think, one of the most damaging things about the internet, where you can just attack people, you'll never see them face to face, and you can spread the worst gossip, um, you can spread lies, and it doesn't matter because you are shielded. You don't even have to identify who you are. When in a town meeting, you have to find another way to converse and debate about the issues. I'm interested, uh, Andy, if you uh, can compare John and John Quincy to the other presidents on duo that we had, Bush 41 and Bush 43. And I think in the book you mentioned that part of what happened with the two Bushes is this kind of phenomenon of people recognizing a familiar name, recognizing a familiar family. Is that um, you know kind of what was happening there? Or are there other similarities in between that relationship? Uh, John Quincy Adams was very much conscious of the fact that his father had a national reputation, had served as vice president and president. And he was deeply concerned and self-critical. He didn't want to come into office 
because of nepotism. He was clear that he did not want President George Washington to appoint him as the minister to the Netherlands, where his father had served during the revolution in, in trying to obtain needed funds for the American revolutionary cause. Um, because it would look like his father, the vice president, had urged President Washington to appoint the son. And so he rebelled, JQA rebelled against it. It was his first diplomatic appointment. He later went on to become uh, minister to the court of St. James as his father had been the first minister to King George III. Um, and uh, uh, so JQA fought, had to fight against the impression that he was being given something he didn't deserve. Um, never mind how many languages he spoke and read in, how many, uh, you know, he, the fact that he was uh, uh, the lead voice at the uh, Treaty of Ghent to end the War of 1812. Um, it was something that as you read his diary, uh, you see that he's, he's wrestling with quite a bit. Now, uh, John Adams, had the good fortune to die at the age of 90 and a half with his son in the White House. Um, uh, the first President Bush, 41, uh, had to endure all of the pain that he, his, or vicariously, uh, to see what his son suffered as a beleaguered president. Um, the defeat of and, uh, that Andrew Jackson's defeat of John Quincy Adams after one term. Uh, the father, John Adams, did not live to see that, uh, nor did he live to see his son rise again uh, in uh, the House of Representatives. So, um, uh, the, the, but the comparison that's probably most direct is that the presidents Adams both refused to identify with any political party uh, or any cause that they would have their names subscribed to, that they belonged to a larger organization. That, that independence of spirit, independence of mind, the moral courage, the political courage, uh, that's what they wanted their legacy to be. The Presidents Bush uh, were are, you know, proud leaders of a political party. Um, the president is considered to be the leader of his political party. The Adamses wanted nothing to do with that. And also, John Quincy Adams uh, changed parties. Um, essentially, he is elected as a Federalist to serve in the Senate, and he begins to disagree strongly with the position that the Federalists are taking and begins to support uh, James Madison's policy. So, and, and he knew that that was going to end his career. Essentially, he was not going to get reelected uh, in the Senate, but he was willing to take that stand. And that's, and when he did, this is what's so interesting because uh, James Madison earlier in his career was uh, all the way back in the Continental Congress um, and in the regular Congress, uh, there ends up being uh, factions and parties are forming. There's kind of a pro-Franklin faction um, who were very critical of John Adams. And James Madison, you know, heard things about John Adams, uh, even though Jefferson would defend John Adams and criticize him at the same time. Um, he didn't like John Adams. But essentially, by the time that James Madison is in the presidency, 
John Adams supports his son's decision to move away from the Federalist Party. And he sends this incredibly supportive letter to James Madison, who has a very difficult presidency, particularly with the War of 1812. And that changes Madison's opinion of John Adams. So I think it's, it's really important that they, they and in many ways, they are not, like John Adams refused to be the head of the party um, because you know Alexander Hamilton was running the party um, and the fact that they ended up being at odds with one another, but they, they retain that critical distance that they don't just want to be party functionaries. Great, um, so we have a couple great audience questions uh, to get to. Um, the first one asks, uh, with President Trump, the cult of personality appears to have reached a new level. Why has this happened? And I know that you don't mention this in the book, but you wrote a really interesting piece for Democracy Magazine called The Democratic Autocrat, where you kind of compared the age of Jackson to the age of Trump. So what are some of the lessons that maybe we can draw from that? Well, we, we comment on this a lot because everyone knows that Jackson's portrait is one that uh, Trump has selected uh, but I don't believe he knows anything about Jackson. This was probably <laughs> Steve Bannon's idea that, that suggested that he should fashion himself in the image of Jackson. Um, there were certain similarities and then there were certain differences. Of course, Donald Trump never faced, was in the military. He never faced that kind of danger or death. Um, but there is a, a reaction to Jackson that is similar, that Jackson is called the Democratic Autocrat. And he's someone who believes that his, he is the embodiment of the will of the people. He's the first one to say that. And that he has no respect for the Supreme Court. <laughs> he believed that if the executive, uh, that, that he was a co, that the executive branch was a co-equal branch. Um, and even though he was trained in the law, he really did not understand the subtleties of the law or care much about enforcing the law. And that he believed in, he, he, in a sense, uh, was very much seen as this larger-than-life personality. He was marketed and sold on his personality. Yeah, he was, he was the outsider. Um, uh, it, it, before it was drain the swamp, it was clean out the Augean stables, which is a <laughs> classical illusion uh, that accompanied uh, Jackson's campaign for the presidency, that he was going to come in and clean out the stables drain the swamp. So, so some, yeah, they're very curious, uh, relatable uh, episodes from, from their lives. Uh, he, Jackson, had a condition worse than bone spurs. He uh, had a bullet lodged in his chest throughout his life. They could never operate, and, and, and it stayed there. Uh, uh, and he lived to be, I think, 78 years old. But he was, like Trump, the oldest president at the time, the, the oldest man to be elected president at that time. And he was the first president to use the veto power in a way that his predecessors had not used the veto power. Again, assuming that, and that's what's kind of curious about John Adams, even though he, he felt it was important to have a strong executive branch, when he's actually in the presidency, he does not take on that role of being um, a, you know, a strong, domina domineering executive. 
how would the Adamses have dealt with what is going on today between Congress and the White House with respect to the contempt proceedings? You know, we're historians. <laughs> <laughs> we're not paid to be prescriptive. Uh, go ahead. You but want to take a I shot would say <laughs> that clearly, um, because of John Adams and the Sun, their emphasis on checks and balances, that they believed that the House was an extremely important branch, that they, and they believed in rules. <laughs> they believed that, that you cannot tip the balance uh, to favor one branch in a way that weakens another branch. So I think if we take those basic principles, uh, I think we know what side they would be on. Well, I, I can say one thing with assurance. Um, they would not have been happy with, with the fact that we have a donor class in this country, that, that, you, that money can, can literally buy candidates. Um, I, I, don't, I don't know that anyone of that generation could have conceived that the Supreme Court would reach the point of Citizens United because one, one of the reasons they didn't stay in Congress very long for, for more than a, a term or two, for the most part, in the early decades of the Republic, was that you weren't paid well. Uh, you, I think you, you, your expenses were repaid to get from Delaware to Washington or Massachusetts to Washington. Um, but they had to go back and ply their trade. I mean, the Adamses had a working farm and uh, they hired servants uh, to help, but, uh, or, you know, uh, uh, they did work their own farms. They didn't get rich in the law. Lawyers did not make uh, nearly as much money um, as, they, as they do these days. So to be a lawyer uh, was no assurance of anything. And Abigail Adams uh, didn't want, pressed her son. She didn't want John Quincy to marry until uh, you know, his law practice was doing well enough that he could support a family. Um, so th there are so many ways in which we cannot compare then and now. Um, uh, the Constitution was written for a population that is one one-hundredth of the population today. But the one thing we can say for sure is money and politics, no way. No, I think if the Supreme Court had engaged with the arguments of John Adams uh, in making the decision of Citizens United, they would, have, they would have gone in a very different direction because I think that the problem there is this idea of corporate interests, people with money, are really reflecting this danger of oligarchy. And my, my joke, which I haven't gotten to say, that I'm going to say now, I, the media always refers to Russian oligarchs as if we don't have anything comparable, as if they are the only ones. Um, and this is a dangerous because when they talked about oligarchy, they were not only talking about a wealthy, you know, elite class, but a class that has um, special access to political power. This is what they saw as being extremely dangerous to, you know, a Republican or, you know, a representative democracy. Andy, you mentioned Abigail Adams. This question uh, asks, can you tell us something about Ab Abigail Adams that isn't widely known or discussed? <laughs> well, um, I started to say something about her pressuring her son. Um, uh, in the early years, 
when she was living apart from him because uh, he spent an, a number of his formative years in Europe and she stayed back with uh, the younger, his younger siblings uh, in Massachusetts. Um, uh, she was worried about the old world having a, a negative moral effect on him because, you know, like the, the reputation of the French and he was in Paris. Um, and he traveled alone through wilderness. He went from Russia uh, to Sweden, spent the, the winter in Sweden. He thought the girls were pretty um, and rejoined his father at The Hague. Uh, Abigail would write to him with, you know, sort of wagging her finger at, at him. When it came time for him to marry, he fell in love with a young woman in Massachusetts. He didn't tell his parents about her because uh, he knew they, they would oppose because he wasn't able, he, if he were to marry her, Mary, um, he wouldn't be able to support her. So he kept their relationship secret. When he went back to Europe uh, in the mid-1790s, he fell in love with the woman he married, Louisa Catherine Johnson. And they, like Abigail and John, had 50 years of, of a largely happy marriage. Uh, but he had these transatlantic correspondence with his mother uh, in debate about whether he had the right to decide to marry out of love and forget the money factor. Um, you're going to meet your future daughter, your, your daughter-in-law in good time. And, and this is when he came into his own. Um, when he was abroad and his father uh, was uh, vice president, president, he had those years to, uh, uh, to liberate himself from uh, the parental bonds. But I would say that you know, Abigail plays a very important role in our book. Um, she's often a mediator between uh, conveying information uh, from the son to the father. Um, I particularly like Abigail uh, during the revolutionary period, um, not only because she's very much ahead of John in, in seeing that women need to have a, a more secure political voice and the right of consent, and she is very forthright in telling him that, and he doesn't agree. Um, but on top of that, what is interesting in the relationship to the son is that Abigail was also very outspoken against slavery at that period. And she basically said that she didn't believe, and here she's talking about the Virginians, she, she, and the, the Southern slaveholders, she said that it was impossible for anyone to really believe in liberty who was a slaveholder. And then on top of that, she was deeply concerned with slavery, and, and we may think this is something that emerges later, but she was very aware that slavery involved exploiting slave women, um, and that slave women were often sexually abused. And she felt there, that the corruption in slavery was not only about turning people into property, but also, in a sense, turning women into uh, breeders and, turning, and exploiting women sexually. And that, that concern actually influenced her son in a significant way, because you can see him voicing similar views later in his life when he becomes very critical and outspoken against slavery. And he um, famously uh, represented uh, in the Amistad case, uh, which you discuss in the book. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, he's really remarkable. I mean, every issue, and this is one of the things, the petition issue, you know, John Quincy Adams is referred to as old man eloquent, 
Well, he didn't win the debates with his silver tongue in Congress. He was scrappy. He would often provoke uh, his opposition into hysterics. And one of his greatest moments was when he presents a petition from slaves. And then suddenly, uh, the members of the House are in an uproar. They're calling for his censure. Um, and he waits until everyone quiets down, and they've worded the statement for censure. And then he tells them that it is a petition not to end slavery, but to preserve it. Now, he knew it was a hoax, and he knew that this would embarrass his colleagues. He took it one step further. Then he went on to defend the right of slaves to use petitions. Um, and this is, this, this is what he had to be. He, what he did was he was, and this is why we like them, and not only skeptical about human nature, but they constantly were showing that the people who might call themselves Jacksonian Democrats or call themselves Democrats, everything they're doing is either undermining justice <laughs> or curtailing democracy. Because what Southerners had done is they had imposed what was known as the gag rule. And they said that the House could not receive any petitions, that were anything to do with slavery, and that members of the House couldn't even talk about it. They couldn't even mention it. And he makes this powerful argument. He says that why should only the master class, why should only their rights be protected and everyone else's rights undermined? And he went through every class group. He said that only the master class are the ones most interested in slavery. Um, and, and this is where we can see his his very astute but very pointed critique um, in exposing what was the facade, exposing the facade, the rhetoric of democracy, which wasn't actually being sustained by real policy and real behavior in, um, among the members of the House. And one of the, one of the other things that we found very surprising uh, as we bore down and, and, and did the research into the original documents, is that John Adams, uh, in his diaries especially, it paints character in a, in a novelistic way with such detail and such cleverness uh, and such an observant eye that we really do believe that he would have been a, a fine novelist. And he, he loved the, the political, satirical, the picaresque. And John Quincy Adams, who was actually somewhat more dour uh, his son called him a cold fish. Uh, didn't understand how he had a political following at all. Uh, yet he wrote very profound poetry, a lot of poetry. And it got better and better as the years went by. He would write poems to constituents, uh, to the, the, the daughters of, of, of colleagues. And uh, he even wrote epic poetry. And some of it is quite good and historical. So um, they had these literary talents that accompanied their uh, you know, heavier political theorizing. So they really were not just cosmopolitans, um, but, but, but true Renaissance men. And, and getting back to Amistad, one of the things that I discovered in rereading his uh, arguments before the Supreme Court, he quotes Gilles Blas. He quotes that picaresque novel something that he had read as a young man uh, with his father. So the, the fiction and the, and the way it exposed human nature in a different way does inform their constitutional views. Great. Well, we're out of time, but I just want to ask one final question, and you can offer any closing thoughts. But 
this question asks, can you identify anyone other than Oprah, Trump, or any of the Kardashians with the personality and celebrity to win the presidency? But I guess I'll add to that and just ask, you know, is that, is that now, is that required still? Like, do you have to win the cult of personality in order to win the presidency? Or is it possible for someone like John Adams to eventually be elected in the future? You know, when you see uh, the media following Beto around from lunch counter to lunch counter where he jumps <laughs> up and yeah. rolls up his sleeves, gesticulates. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, Pete Buttigieg has a little bit of that Adams flair, uh, and not just because uh, he's able to converse in a variety of languages, but there is an articulateness that the Adamses had. Um, but that said, um, they were not natural politicians. And people like that would not be electable today. And they, they recognized it. Um, uh, I, I think we are at a moment in our history when the visual is so much more important. Theirs was a typographical world. Jefferson was a man of the people on the basis not of his interactions with other human beings, but with the outpouring of his pen, which spoke from the heart, which still speaks to us. Um, so that's a typographical age. Ours is a visual media age. And so how you appear, your physiognomy, your uh, sense of humor, the way it's conveyed how telegenic you are cannot but be a, a, a often deciding factor. No, I think it's very dangerous. I mean, you know, I refer to the campaign as a virtual catwalk, uh, where the voters are essentially, you know, judging um, who has the right look, who has the right tone of voice, who has the right charisma, that ridiculous likability factor. Um, I, I think what we need is what we say when we want more Adamsian democracy is to unmask the illusion uh, that the media has to take, instead of just turning the campaign into uh, a fashion show, um, and as we know, this is something that is detrimental to the women candidates. Um, they are not going to be judged the same. Uh, there are different standards. And I think that the, the, you know, I always like to go back and refer to the fact, and few people know this, but it was actually Richard Nixon who was the first person to uh, use a virtual town meeting where it was completely scripted and staged. And it gave the illusion that everyone in the audience had just you know, come to this town meeting to hear him talk, to make him look comfortable, which is something that he didn't do naturally. And this is the, where the media, in a sense, has so much power to shape you know, who they're following, that they have to, I think, take more of an approach where they are ex you know, ex exposing the smoke and screen and not just kind of contribute, because it's not gonna go away, because politics is still about ambition, but finding a way to talk, and not just talk about it as the mechanics, which a lot of commentators like to do, because that endorses it well. But to talk about, let's get back to what really matters. It's not their smile. It's not their outfit. Um, it's not whether they wear pantsuits. Um, essentially, it's about whether they know what they're talking about. Before we break for commercial, <laughs> can we just do one thing? And that is, 
Nancy just mentioned it a few minutes ago, this word Adamsian. We know Jeffersonian democracy. We know Jacksonian democracy. Can we get the audience to say Adamsian democracy <laughs> just once? Adamsian democracy. <laughs> Thank you. This episode was edited by Greg Sheckler and produced by me, Tanea Tauber, and Jackie McDermott. If you enjoyed this constitutional conversation, please rate, review, and subscribe to the show and tell your friends about it. And check out our companion podcast, We the People, a weekly show of constitutional debate that's available wherever you get your podcasts. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Tanea Tauber. 